We're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning. And, and last week, if you were here, and if you weren't, that's okay. I want to bring you up to, to speed. We, what we have in the scriptures in John chapter 3 is really John the Baptist's final recorded testimony in all the gospels. This is really his, his final words in terms of testimony about Jesus Christ. And if you remember the passage last week, John the Baptist's disciples were pretty upset because this guy, Jesus, whom John had identified earlier, was now drawing away the crowds to himself, and John's ministry appeared to be shrinking. And you remember his disciples came to him. They were a little bit envious. They were like, man, we got to, you know, the, the implication in their, in their language, the emotion of their language is, we got to shut this down. Like, we can't let this happen, John. I mean, this guy that you identified, John, maybe you're talking about him too much because now people really like this guy. They're going to him. And you remember John's response? He's like, dude, I'm the friend of the groom. You do know the groom. The bride goes home with the groom, right? You know that, right? That's kind of how weddings work. And this is kind of an illustration he uses. And then he gives a succinct, direct, and and very profound statement in verse 30, which I think is was his life goal. I think it should have been his disciples' life goal. And quite frankly, I think it should be all of our life goal. And it's found in that statement in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus Christ must increase and I must decrease. And that knocks a lot of us upside the head because many of us are so committed to our little hobby horse, so committed to our little agenda, so committed to whatever that the fact, the thought of Jesus increasing and us decreasing, him becoming more prominent, us becoming less prominent, his issues and what's on his heart becoming more of the priority in our life than our own little hobby horse is, is quite frankly scary for some of us. But this is where we need to, to grow to. Because if the center of the universe is about Jesus Christ, I kind of think our lives should be about the same center. And this is kind of what John the Baptist is saying, and in this morning, as we kind of finish out chapter three, we're going to look at his explanation for saying what he did in verse 30. He's going to tell us why Jesus should increase and why he should decrease and why by implication that should be true of all of us. The first reason is found in verse 31. And specifically speaking, it's because of where Jesus is, because of who he is and where he's from. He should always be the one increasing. We should be decreasing. And this is what verse 31 says. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now, I should mention in passing, because if you study this passage with any commentary, you'll see there's a little debate here amongst commentators and Bible teachers. You know, it's not as if we have anything other to do. I mean, we only have 66 books to study and try to learn how they fit together. But there is a debate here, and I, and I can understand the debate, but many people think in verse 31 that John the disciple, the apostle, the author of the book, comes in here at verse 31 and kind of provides some editorial comments to close out the chapter. Other people believe this is John the Baptist finishing out his last recorded testimony. Um, I'll leave the commentators uh, for you to look at that. I think it's a minor issue. I'm going to go with the idea that this is John the Baptist finishing out his testimony this morning. So that's kind of how we're going to approach the passage, at least together this morning. If you, if you like that kind of, you know, geeky stuff, and geeky stuff's not bad. I mean, it's, just, it's but if you like that, you can go check it out on your own time in the commentaries. They'll give you a, a lot to read. 
And so notice he says, really, he kind of repeats himself. He who comes from above is all. He who comes from heaven is above all. And he restates his point. And the point is this, that the origin of Jesus Christ is above all. The point being that, you know what, guys, my disciples, John the Baptist speaking to his disciples, it is okay that people are going to Jesus and going away from me. Why? He's above all, guys. He's, he's up there. His origin is such that that makes sense. We shouldn't be upset about that. In fact, to come from above speaks of coming from a higher place. To come from heaven, it's, it's the Greek preposition ek. It means out of heaven. This is, the words, he's coming there. That's his origin. That's how he got here. He came from heaven, and thus he's above all, and thus people should go there. Both phrases, uh, in fact, use this as a justification to say that Jesus is, present tense, right now, above all, meaning he's up above there. He's over in terms of authority, dignity, and rank. Remember John, if you, if you just flip your finger back to 115, you can kind of see this, but he had said that Jesus was preferred before him. We looked at that word closely when we were there, and the idea is that, that Jesus outranked John. So again, the, the whole context is this is why it's okay that people are flocking to him now and leaving John the Baptist. This is what, again, the reasoning that he gives. And then John's origin, in contrast, earthly. He, he's from the earth. He had a normal, natural origin. And even though he was a prophet of God, he had a unique ministry. He was the one to prophesy about the Messiah and actually finger point him in person. There he is. He had that unique ministry. Even John was not in the same category as Jesus Christ. I mean, that seems like the understatement of the year. <laughs> and, and yet his disciples are struggling with the fact that people are leaving him and going to Jesus. John had an entirely earthly origin, a unique earthly origin, right? His parents were, his mom was barren. There was kind of a miracle there to make her womb fertile. But he did have a, a beginning at his conception. He had two human parents. Not so Jesus, right? He's a little bit more unique. We kind of learned about his genealogy in John 1. You know, John, John 1 gives a genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's just his divine genealogy. And it's real simple. He's always existed. Genealogy over, right? That's his divine, or, that's his divine genealogy. You get to the other gospels, Matthew and Luke, and they give more of his human genealogy leading to his birth. But Jesus has always in the past existed with God and he was God, right? John 1.1. And so again, this is why it's just absolutely mind-bending that the disciples of John the Baptist have an issue with this. And John is now giving him explanations. Why should Jesus increase? Why should I decrease? And the first thing he's gonna say is it's because of who he is and where he's from. This just makes sense, guys. It's, it's totally okay. Nothing to be upset about. But we're going to see also that because of where he's from, his origin, so to speak, he also provides the strongest eyewitness testimony of the mind of God on things. And that's what we're going to see in the next two verses in verse 32. So it's another reason, again, why Jesus should increase and I must decrease. You know, it's like, it's like taking a math course from, from somebody who's you know, you're struggling with Algebra 1, and they've completed Algebra 1, and they're your tutor to help you with the math course. They might help a little bit. But what about if you got the professor that wrote the Algebra 1 textbook? That would be much better, right? You're going to probably learn a little bit more 
than from the junior varsity guy. And I'm not saying John was junior varsity, but you know what? Anyone is junior varsity when you're comparing yourself to Jesus Christ. And so this is what we're going to see here in this witness is that Jesus provided eyewitness testimony. Verse 32 through 33, let's read it. It says this, and what he has seen and heard, speaking of Jesus, that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. And so we see these two words describing Jesus that he's seen things, he's heard things, and based on what he's seen and heard, he testifies of what he's seen and heard. This word seen really simply means to see with the eyes. That doesn't help us too much. But the the perspective on this is that you're seeing with your eyes and you're taking it in to perceive what's going on, to actually understand what you're seeing. We do this a lot, right? We're, we're walking, we're walking, something catches our eye, and we're like, wait a minute, what is, did I just see what I think I saw? You know, in, in today's day and age, that seems to happen a lot in public places. It's like, did I just see what I think I saw? And you, you tend to look because you're trying to perceive what's going on. You're trying to think, is that guy really wearing a dog costume in the middle of a and you, you look, you're, you're looking with perception. That's kind of what comes through with this word. Not only that, but he heard. And the idea is not again that it hit his eardrum, but that he, he heard with, with the ear of the mind to with the goal of processing information. Now, John, I think, is using an, uh, an anthropomorphism, you know, describing Jesus in human terms that we can understand. Um, Jesus, obviously, all-knowing. No, I mean, he's God, right? But I think what John is, is setting up here, the idea communicated from these two words, is that Christ really paid attention. And thus, he's a very strong witness, very strong witness, because he's seen it, he's heard it, he's paid close attention to it, he's taken it all in, and he, and he can describe it in a way that's trustworthy. And because of what Jesus is going to describe later in John 5, I cannot wait till we get there someday. I mean, it's going to be awesome, because what he's going to say there is the things that he heard and saw, he heard and saw God the Father say. He heard and saw what God the Father did, and thus he simply did what his Father did. He, everything he did on this earth was what his Father would have him do on his earth. And every father of a son in the room or a daughter in the room says, amen, give me a child like that, right? Because that's exactly what, what you want, and what you see is this complete unity in the Godhead. And we'll talk more about that here. But John is just simply establishing, again, the reason it's good that you're going to Jesus is he is the strongest, most reliable witness of heavenly things. And you can trust him. So why are you sticking with me? Go, go to him. It's okay. And one of the things that he saw and heard are the very things he testified of, meaning he bore witness. He gave testimony of the truth of what he's seen. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about the book of John, I think I've said this before and I'll say it again as we get further in the book, but the verb testify and the noun testimony, uh, when you, they're derived from the same root word and they're used uh, roughly 50 times in the book of John, which is, which is interesting because it almost sets up the book like a, like a court case, like a, a legal case presenting evidence for you and I to consider and then determine, are we persuaded by the evidence or are we not? And isn't that really John's whole purpose in writing the book? I mean, that's John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. He writes these things. He hand-selected some signs so that we would do what? 
we would be persuaded by what he shares, and we'd be convinced that we can rely on the Lord Jesus and him alone for salvation. That's exactly what the end of the book uh, points to. And so he's got all of these presentations of testimony and evidence. We're going to see that in a Jewish court of law, two to three witnesses was all you needed. If they corroborated their story, they could convict a man or a woman of death in the Jewish court system. We're going to see when we get to John chapter 5, Jesus has got more than three witnesses. He's, he's got some big guns as his witnesses. He's got star witnesses, and we're going to see that. But right now, John is simply describing Jesus as he is the primary, strongest evidence giver that has ever existed in terms of heavenly things. Now, typically when you think of witnesses, <clears throat> and there's some application to us here, but typically when you think of witnesses, they simply give the facts of what they've seen and heard. At least that's what they're supposed to do, right? A, a good witness simply relays the facts as they've seen and heard it. They don't hold the same role as an attorney. What's the attorney trying to do? Most attorneys are trying to win at all costs. They, they're trying to take the set of facts and testimonies that they've got, and they're trying to convince this panel uh, of jury members or the judge to, to decide in their favor, to actually be persuaded of their arguments to one side. Witnesses generally are more neutral. They generally report the facts. Now, clearly in the case of Jesus Christ, he, he wants to persuade with his testimony because he understands the outcome when somebody's not persuaded by his testimony. We're going to see that in this passage. And, and as we're going to see here in these, these two verses, and it's this consistent theme throughout the book of John, you go back to John 1, uh, 11 through 12, there's only two responses to Jesus's testimony. And this is, what, this is what we've all got to understand. Putting the decision off to another day regarding Jesus Christ is in and of itself a decision. And it's not it's not neutral. And, and this is what this passage is going to be, bring out. It's either reception of him and his testimony, or it's rejection of him and his testimony. That's it. There's, there's only two responses. Everyone in the world fits into one of those two categories exactly at this moment in time. And everyone in the world will fit into that category exactly two moments into the future. Because there's only two responses here. He's going to detail this for us uh, in these verses. First possible response is a no-go, right? It's a, it's a rejection. He says this here, that no one, uh, you'll, you'll see that in verse 32, no one receives his testimony. Same word used in John 1. It means that uh, to take in whatever manner. It means to actively take or passively receive. And the idea is no one took it. No one bought his testimony. Now, that's an overstatement because we see that some did, but it, the, the idea is that the majority of Jesus's audience in that first century did not receive his testimony. This is why at the end of his life, when we get there and Pilate of all people wants to release Jesus Christ, the crowd scream, no, crucify him and give us Barabbas. Crucify him and give us Barabbas. They had been stirred up by the leaders who had already rejected him and they were willing to go along with that rejection. Why? Because they were not convinced of his testimony. They weren't convinced that what he was saying was true. And so they didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was, that he was fulfilling all of the prophecies concerning the Messiah from the Old Testament. And this is um, clearly tragic because those were sign markers that God the Father had placed there all throughout the history of their nation so that when he showed up on the scene, it would just be like clicking off a checklist. Oh man, he's this. 
he's this, he's this, he's this. And after they got about 300 prophecies down the list, they should have put their clipboard and said, he's the one. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They should have agreed with John the Baptist, but they didn't. They were almost like, where's 301? Where's 302? I'm not seeing enough here. And that was their attitude, but they didn't receive him. The other response is uh, obviously the positive, reception. He who has received uh, his testimony, we kind of picked that up in verse 33. There were some that received his testimony. There were some that believed, if you will. And by believing Jesus' testimony, something else became true of them. They actually, they didn't realize that they would contribute to this, but they did. And that brings us to the next point. And what we see is they certified that God is true. That's what the text tells us, that when they received Jesus' testimony, they certified that God is true. The triune God, the message that the triune God was seeking to communicate to that first century group was true. Because they received the son as they received the triune God and they believed his testimony. They received it. They were persuaded by it and they received it. Now, a seal in general was used for the sake of security in this day. It was to confirm that something was secure and trustworthy. We kind of use something similar today that's found in this passage. We would say we put our stamp of approval or we put our seal of approval on Jesus's testimony. And that's what they were doing. By believing that what he was saying was true, they actually put their seal on it. They said, yeah, man, I verify. This guy, this guy's legit. What he's saying is true. They were also testifying at the same time. If his testimony is true, then the testimony of God, Yahweh, the triune God is also true. And that's what's being said here in this passage. You know, uh, there was an evangelist of yesteryear. Many of you have heard his name, D.L. Moody. And, and D.L. Moody understood the, the concept that's being communicated here, that, that what you do with Jesus Christ is a black and white issue. If you know much about D.L. Moody, he was a, uh, a very salt of the earth kind of guy, very, wore his emotions on his sleeve, cared about people greatly. He was speaking at a meeting full of men and, and uh, he finished his message and he asked the question, now who will believe in him tonight? This is the question he poses to this group of men. And kind of caught him off guard, but a big, big man, I think he was a lumberjack, stood up in the back and he said, I won't. Shook his fist, shook his finger at D.L. Moody. I won't receive him. D.L. Moody, caught off guard by the moment, burst into tears. He was so affected by the fact that this guy would reject Jesus Christ. And through his tears, he said, you know what? This man brings up a good point. And he says, it's either I will or I won't for every man in this room tonight. And he hit it on the head. That's exactly what's being said there. Not I'm going to consider it later. No, if you're going to consider it later, then you are in the I won't category right now. And we're going to see there's an outcome for that. And it's not designed to, to scare you into heaven. It's designed to elevate and exalt in your thinking that you can be persuaded by what Jesus Christ did for you alone. And your confidence can be there 100%. That there's no time like the present to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose again. And this is what we're going to see. It's a black and white white issue. And so as you sit there today, and there may be some here are still considering this message, understand you either will or you won't believe this morning. And I would just say, don't put it off. This is not a decision 
that we want to handle lightly because we're going to see the outcome for those who won't. Now, one of the things that we see clearly in the scriptures is God has put everything in place for you and I to be saved. Nobody has to leave this room this morning without knowing 100% sure that they have eternal life and that they have forgiveness of sins. That's what the Bible teaches. It's all based on a work that happened way before you were born, 2,000 years ago, when the Son of God did something for you which only he could accomplish. You had no part in it. He died for your sins. He paid your sin debt in full. He rose again three days later. God accepts his sacrifice on your behalf. And God says, if you will simply trust in his solution for salvation, he will credit his death to your account as the payment of your sin debt. And he will provide a righteousness equal to his, which you need to get into heaven. It's all there for you. It is literally your move. (laughs) He, He has put it in place. It is ready for you to respond to. Everything is done. The work has been completed. Will you trust in what Christ did for you? That's really the question for each one of us. And so as as we go on in the passage now, John is going to give us another reason why Jesus must increase and why he must decrease. And he says it this way in verse 34, for he whom the son has sent, or for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the spirit by measure. And then we'll read verse 35 as well. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. And so four is giving us this further explanation why those who receive the testimony of Jesus Christ have certified that God is true. The reason they've received the very words of God. They've just done it through the mouthpiece of the son. This is what John is bringing out. And so what's really ironic, and this is one of those equations, you just don't want to be on the wrong side of the equal sign here. There, there is a mixed response to Jesus Christ and the test, his testimony and testimony about him around the world. There's a mixed response in humankind. But I'm going to tell you something based on this verse that we need to understand. There is no mixed response to Jesus Christ in heaven. God is completely convinced. God the Father God, the Spirit, the triune Godhead, the Son, are completely convinced that what Jesus did and said and the things said about him and the Word of God are true. They don't need any additional assistance to prove the case for them. And that's what we see really being brought out in this verse. In fact, we see God the Father sent God the Son, and that God the Son speaks the word of the triune Godhead because he is God, not because he got God-like things and kind of just repeats God-like things. That's oftentimes what the prophets did, right? They received uh, revelation from God, and they just kind of were a funnel to communicate it. Jesus speaks the word representing God because he is God. Not because he just got a revelation and then just passed it along. He is God. He is the revelation, if you will. And so this is very important to consider. Now, one of the things that you'll see in the gospel, and it's just important to note as we go through, there's 39 times where Jesus is described as being sent by God the Father. Now, that has a lot of implications here, but I think a couple of things. It confirms and affirms his deity. It confirms and affirms his heavenly origin. And it confirms that God, the triune Godhead, has sent him to be a representative of God. And so that's very important because there's a a level when you send somebody, you're putting your stamp of approval on them. You're letting the world know that you are pleased with 
this one. In fact, what did God the Father say at God the Son's baptism by John the Baptist? This is my beloved Son, right? In whom I am well pleased. This is the idea. He sent him. He's pleased with him. This is why John 1.18 says, no one has seen God, the triune God at any time, the only begotten Son, the unique and one and only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, expressing nearness of relational intimacy there, has declared him. Declared who? God. He's, he's drawn him out. He's shown us uh, who God is, what he's like, what he's done. And so the reason that we can trust what Jesus says, not only because God the Father uh, accepts him, but because we learn uh, what we learn also in this verse. It's kind of an interesting phrase. It says, for God, it says the Son speaks the words of God. And then it says, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The idea is he doesn't give it in a measured allotment. The triune Godhead didn't go, you know, Jesus, yeah, let's give you, you know, it's like, it's like going out when you're a teenager and you're like, dad, I'm going out with some friends. I need some money for food. I need, we're going to go to a movie. And your dad pulls out his wallet and he's got, you know, it, it looked like when you're a teenager, $420 bills. You're just like, man, my dad is rich, you know? And it's, my dad always used to joke, yeah, I'm going to the free ATM machine, you know, the, the money where it just spits it out to you. And I used, for a while, I thought that was true. I was like, wow, that's cool. Like, when do I get my card for that thing, you know? But it's like going to, going to your dad, hey, I'm going out and and he's like, he's listening to what you're going to be doing. Okay, you're eating and you're going to go to the movies, you're doing this. And you can just see your dad calculating how much money you're actually going to need. He says, and he gives it out in measure. Maybe he gave me, well, 40 bucks won't get you anywhere today, but I, maybe he gave me 40 bucks at the time. And that was to cover everything that night, right? That's not the picture we get here. In fact, the picture we get here regarding the son in terms of the amount of the spirit of God that he possessed was here's God's wallet, here you go, son. The whole thing. Not, not just doling out 40 bucks, but getting the 420s that are in there, right? The, the whole thing. There's no measure that he's holding back from the son. And this is, again, why must Jesus increase and decrease? Again, John's just giving these explanations and these examples over and over. Now, what's also very interesting about this phrase is all of the biblical writers and prophets they had a way of just like grinding the religious people of the day, the religious leaders of the day. Because do you know that in rabbinical writings, uh, as these rabbis would make reference to the prophets of the Old Testament, they were very clear to say that the Old Testament prophets did not have the fullest measure of the spirit. They would actually teach in rabbinical writings that the prophets got a measured portion of the spirit in recording the words of God, but they never got the full portion. And so what's John saying? Uh, in contrast to what the Old Testament prophets had, the son's got it all. The, the, there's no measured allotment for Jesus Christ. And again, what's he doing? He's making an argument. You know, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says the same thing. A very similar kind of concept. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So do you think God's, the Father, is pleased with Jesus Christ, the Son? I would, I would bank my eternal destiny on it. In fact, I am banking my eternal destiny on that fact, that he is completely satisfied with what Jesus did for me. You know, another reason 
Uh, we can see uh, that, that God doesn't give Jesus the spirit by measure or just little small portions here and there is the fact that God the Son is the fullness of the Godhead in human form. We learned that in Colossians 2. He is fully God. He's not just part God. He's not just limited God. He's not just a measured portion of God. He's fully God in human form. This is what Colossians 2.9 tells us. For in him, Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, not dwelt, not will dwell, dwells all the fullness of the, body, uh, fullness of the Godhead bodily. This is who Jesus Christ is. Again, why should he increase? Why should I decrease? Look, just look at him. It makes sense. It's kind of the idea that John is going toward. Now, one of the things that's so amazing is this, is this caveat to this, because although Jesus fully God, we learn in Philippians chapter two, and, and that is a whole nother passage we should just unpack one day. We don't have time this morning. I'm just going to mention it in passing. But it says that Jesus limited the voluntary use of his divine attributes at times. And, and what that means is he only accessed, as, uh, um, at, like only accessed certain um, assets of his divine uh, attributes when he was dependent upon the spirit of God. That should be mind-blowing to us. In fact, the way Philippians says it is he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he didn't grab hold of all of his divine attributes. He actually lived a human life. He lived in dependence upon the spirit of God. He, if you want to say, tapped into the use of his divine attributes when the spirit of God allowed him to do so or, or serve the purpose of God, then he did. That is mind-blowing to think about. We're going to see that bear out further in the book of John as we go, but I just kind of mentioned that here. So in his perfect execution of life on planet Earth, in a mortal body, sinless, he utilized the empowerment of the Holy Spirit every moment of every day. He was never out of fellowship with the triune Godhead. That is mind-boggling. And you know what's so amazing is this is what... And I'm kind of getting out of this passage for a second, just making a quick application. This is exactly the way you and I are designed to live our life on earth, just like this. Accessing the resources of another. Relational intimacy with the God of the universe. Relational intimacy and occupation with Jesus Christ and thus accessing the resources that only he can provide for us. This is what walking by faith looks like. This is what growing spiritually is going to look like. It's always connected to the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that even more clearly in verse 36 because life is tied up in a person, not a formula, not a church for goodness sakes, but in a person who did something for you that only he could do. And so as a result of who Jesus is, this ought to provide us great encouragement. Look at that next phrase. It doesn't even seem... To fit, but, it, it, but it's building on John's argument as to why it's okay that everyone's going to Jesus Christ and why that should be the result. Look at that very next phrase. He doesn't give the spirit by measure, the end of verse 34, but verse 35, the father loves the son. Doesn't, doesn't seem to fit. It's like, well, huh, why do, you, why do you just insert that in there? Because I believe John wants you to know exactly what the word means. The father loves Jesus Christ with strong affection. That's the definition of the word. You know, and, and it's probably not even worded strongly enough. You know, this is where we get the, the concept. I've, I've got the Greek word there in parentheses. It's agapao, agape. It's the, what we typically think of as an unconditional love. And, you know, that should provide us 
with great security. Because you know what that's telling us is this. There's not a day in eternity past that you could go back and flip on a calendar and find this day, nor a day in the present, nor a day in eternity future where the Father has not, does not, or will not love the Son. Now you're like, wow, that's really cool for Jesus, but what about us? Well, here's the good news. When you put your faith in Christ, God does something miraculous. He performs what I'll call a spiritual surgery. He does something unique that's never been done in the history of mankind. He takes a believer in Jesus Christ, a former sinner destined for hell, who's trusted in the finished work of Christ, and he takes him and he joins him in inseparable union with the Messiah. Where Jesus is, there you are also. This is why he can promise eternal life, because he is eternal life. This is why he can promise eternal life, because he did rise from the grave. He conquered it. He, don't you want a guide who's been farther than where you're going to go? Let's get up on a mountain. There's this really tough trail, but you can definitely make it to the top. Have you ever made it there, guide? No, I've never made it. I usually stop over here. Well, dude, get out of the way and find me someone that's gone there. That's Jesus Christ. He's raised from the dead. He lives. This is exactly what we're seeing. And God loves him with an unconditional love and you're joined to him. So guess what? This is a great, this is great news for you. It's not usually good to be joined to the hip with someone. That usually comes out as a negative connotation in our culture. God has joined you to the hip of the most loved and beloved man in the universe, the center of the universe. And so it provides great security for you. This is why in Romans 8, I mean, we can't go there. I mean, I wish we could, but Romans 8, you know the passage. What shall separate us from the love of Christ or the love of God, the love of Christ? And he goes through this list. And what does he say right at the end? Nothing, nothing shall separate you from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus. See, God loves you with an unconditional love because of where he's placed you in complete union with his son. This ought to just encourage the socks off of us right here. God, the father loves the son unconditionally. I I love it. I mean, it's just really encouraging. And so what it tells us is simply this, as it relates to our context, God, the father is authorized, he's validated, and he's completely satisfied with God, the son and his testimony. And the implication is, if God is satisfied with him and God is satisfied with his testimony, what about you? That's the implication. This is where John is going. Every man, woman, and child based on the testimony of God the Father should say, you know what? Jesus, I'm in. (laughs) I'm gonna entrust my life to you. I'm gonna entrust my destiny to you. I believe that you died for me. And I believe that when you died for me, you did what you said that you did. You accomplished what you said you were going to accomplish. And you know, because of this, we see that the Father has now given all things into his hands. We're gonna kind of get some more details of this as we go forward in the book of John, but it just means he gives of his own accord. He's given with goodwill. It's perfect tense, which I love that. Completed action, continuing results, The father gave all things into his hand and all things remain in his hand. That's the emphasis is the ongoing results. Jesus Christ, as I've said earlier and said before, and I'll probably repeat a million times, is the center of the universe. He's got it all in his hands. And that has been a divinely ordained agreement within the triune God to allow that 
to be executed by the son. It's just amazing who Jesus is. And now you can see how ridiculous it is, even more so than we knew last week, why John the Baptist's disciples were getting all bent out of shape about this. John's almost like, are you kidding me? Like, are you serious? And so he just gives them this incredible Christology, this theology of Jesus Christ. And the very fact that the Father is said to have given all things into the hand of the Son indicates that he's satisfied, he's well-pleased with the Son because he entrusted him with everything, everything. We'll see some more details of that when we kind of get you know, further in the book of John. And so, again, why should he increase? Why should he decrease? I mean, John just keeps giving reason after reason. Now, we get to verse 36. We're going to kind of close out our section this morning. We're going to see clearly the outcome. And this is another strong reason for why Jesus must increase. You know, if John the Baptist's disciples were believing John the Baptist's message and they were baptized by John the Baptist, but then the testimony of Jesus Christ, they rejected. Even though they were on the right track, they were responding to truth. At some point, they rejected the truth. They would go to hell. They would miss out on the kingdom. That would be tragic. But you know, that's true of every religious person that darkens the door of the church, cracks open their Bible, at least on Sunday morning, and they never get to the heart of the message and the testimony about Jesus Christ that the Bible designs. It's tragic. It should never be that way. It should be clearly communicated so that people are brought to a decision. Will you receive the testimony about Jesus Christ by putting your faith in him alone, or will you not? And will you reject that? Do you think there's a different way to heaven, a better way to heaven? that somehow you've got to contribute your own righteousness. That is not God's way. God's way is stop trying and start trusting. Jesus accomplished it all. And so we're going to see the outcome here in verse 36. Let's go ahead and read uh, verse 36. It says this, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And so we see this in verse 36. Now, those of you that were here when we taught through John 3.16 just a few weeks ago, you'll recall that I went into a lot of Greek details here on this phrase. It's a participle, he who believes. You know, it's a a verb, but it's in participle form. And it's the same word. It's the same Greek construction as we have in John 3.16. For a quick review of that, uh, the word itself means to have faith in, which sometimes that doesn't help us understand it any better. Um, But it means to trust in. It means to rely upon. It means to be firmly persuaded by something. And as a result, you're relying upon it. Okay, so that's the concept communicated in the word. It's, it's a word, as we've said before, that John uses a hundred times in his gospel as the only thing that you've got to do to be saved, to have eternal life, to avoid perishing, all of these uh, comments that he makes. And so it's that same word, but it's the same construction. And again, I'm going to get a, a little bit detailed here, but not, I don't want to spend as long as I did in John 3, 16. But just as a reminder that this participle is an art- articulated participle. In other words, it's got the definite article with it. Now, what that does in the Greek language is it turns it into a substantival noun or a descriptive title. Again, some of you are like, why? Okay, why is this important? Why are you going into this detail? Here's why it's uh, significant. The addition of the article, it nominalizes it. In other words, it turns it into a noun. It, it kind of removes this, this verbal aspect from the participle, if you will. So the emphasis is not on the verbal aspect per se, but it, it's translated, he who believes, which we have in our translation, the believer 
or the believing one. The reason this is significant is because the verb itself, the participle itself, doesn't give us any indication on the duration of believing. In other words, is it a point in time belief or is it a ongoing continual belief? That's what I kind of made the argument. A lot of people in John 3 said, oh, it's a present participle. It means you got to continue to believe the rest of your life. That's not what this participle indicates at all. In fact, context has to dictate. What is it talking about? Is it durative? Is it a a moment in time or is it a continual type belief? Now we had looked in the context of John 3, 16, that it's a one-time moment of faith. It's just describing someone who's believed. What's the nature of the belief? It's a one-time moment of faith. Again, how do we know that? The Old Testament example Jesus used in John 3, 14. That was a one-time moment of faith. Looking at the serpent on the pole, they were healed in that moment. And he uses that as an example. And so we see that if someone will simply believe in Jesus Christ at a moment in time, transfer their trust from whatever they were trusting in before, religion, their goodness, whatever, false teaching, and put it in Jesus Christ and his finished work alone, we see there's a result. In fact, it's an immediate result. This is another indication that this is a moment in time deal because it doesn't say, go back to verse 36, it doesn't say he who believes in the Son will have everlasting life. Is that what your, your version doesn't say that, right? It's present tense. It's, it's the Greek word uh, translated has. It's a present active indicative. It means right now, immediately and continually, this believer possesses everlasting life. And by the way, not to be a smart aleck, but to point out the obvious, because at some level, we get so smart that we become very stupid sometimes. <laughs> And, and we just don't take things from God's word at face value. And everlasting life, by definition, lasts forever. Could anyone disagree with that? I, that just seems to be so simplistic and just so straightforward. And, you know, Greek has over 5,000 words. So if it wasn't everlasting life, he probably could have picked a different word, right? The point is this, if you have everlasting life, and it never ends by definition, can you ever lose it? If you could, then you never had it to begin with because everlasting life goes forever. So there's nothing you can do to lose it. And in fact, because it doesn't say will have, there's not this hope that's somewhere out there, like Fievel Mouskowitz, that somewhere out there, you're gonna get eternal life. It's that you have it the moment you believe and it never ends. This is just taking Jesus and his testimony, as he's describing it here, at face value. When you rely upon God's solution alone for sin, God makes incredible promises and God keeps his promises. And that's what we've been studying in John 3. What about the other alternative though? Remember, it's a black and white issue. There's a decision that each of us has to come to. It's putting Jesus off is the equivalent of rejecting him. Even though you, you might even have warm, fuzzy feelings toward Jesus and you just want to think about it some more but you're equivalently making the decision to reject him in this moment. It's one of the two. There's only two responses. And that's what's described here at the end of verse 36. He who does not believe the son of the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Again, this this phrase, he who does not believe, it's also an articulated participle. It's just describing someone who's unbelieving. The unbeliever, it nominalizes, it makes it a noun. 
But what's really interesting here, and some of your translations have picked this up, and, and as I'm reading through, you're, I, I, you know, I already hear the mind going, wait a minute, that's not what my translation says. Because some of your translation says, he who believes, right, verse 36, uh, the very beginning, has ever, everlasting life. And then some of your translation says, but he who does not obey, right? And that's kind of coming out, you're like, whoa, 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 what's going on there? All right. So he does switch here. I, you know, that's true. He switches away from pastuo. That's the, the Greek verb, meaning to believe that he uses a hundred times in the book. And now he switches to a Greek word that's uh, patho and he negates it. So he says, it, it, it's, you basically, you're not pathoing, right? <laughs> so we'll talk about what patho means here in a second, but he negates it. And the question is, what's the difference? Why, why the switch? Well, the definition for the word patho can mean disobedient. That's, hence, that's an okay translation there. The question becomes, what are we talking about? What is being disobeyed here in the context? And I believe as we go on, it's not allowing yourself to be persuaded or to believe. It's an unwillingness or refusal to comply with the demands of some authority. It might be better said, the one who refuses to be persuaded to trust in the Son. In other words, you're rejecting belief. You're, You're disobeying the the implication that you should believe the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what you're rejecting. That's why uh, it, it can be translated disobedience, but we're not talking about activity here. You know, everyone comes to that verse and like, oh yeah, well, if you commit adultery and if you do this, you know, that's disobedient and you can, the wrath of God. That's not what we're talking about at all. The context doesn't even bear that out. The context is that you're disobedient to not trust in the son or to believe or receive his testimony. That's really what the context is surrounding this. I like what the Net Bible says. It says, the one who rejects the son. And so he said, we're not talking about behavior here. That's where many people go with the last part of this verse. But it's, at, it's actually our willingness to receive the testimony or not. That's what's at stake here. And so we're going to see that the person who won't be persuaded to trust or rely upon Jesus Christ, there's two guaranteed results. Um, not very pretty either. This is kind of one of those, you know, not positive portions of the message, uh, message this morning. First result, he shall not see life. Shall not see, in the Greek, is a future indicative. It's guaranteed promise. The person that rejects believing in Jesus Christ, this is a guaranteed promise. They will not see life. They will not experience life. And everlasting life is in the context here. And one of the things we've got to understand, and, I, and I've said this before, but, but I'll say it again. Eternal life is not found in a process. Eternal life is not found in a procedure, a mechanism, a, a step-by-step program. It, it is found in a person. We, we never want to disassociate eternal life from a person. We never want to dissociate our Christian living from a person. It's, it always goes back to Jesus Christ. And this is why I love what John writes later in his life in 1 John 5, 11 through 12. I remember well, I'll tell you a story in a second. This is, uh, let's read this. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is where? In his son, not in his church, not in his pastors, not in his prophets, not in, not even as we're going to see in John 5, not even just you studying the Bible. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But Jesus is going to tell a group of religious Pharisees and religious leaders who spent their entire life studying the Bible saying, you search the scriptures for eternal life, but you don't have it because they testify of me. Because he's life. And that's exactly what this verse says. 
He who has the Son has what? Life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. It's all tied up in a person. I remember a friend of mine was preaching at a church in Africa, and he was preaching on this passage. And I had finished my sermon in another church, and then I was coming to his church, so I just caught the tail end. And I just remember the the feeling as I'm, I'm walking down this road, and I can see the church in the distance, and I can hear them scream. He's got them all revved up. And I'm like, what is going on here? And so as I get closer, he just went over this verse over and over again. And and in Africa, they're very responsive. They're very responsive. They'll just scream and yell and respond back at you. And he would just say, he who has the son has what? And be like, life, you know, and they're just like going nuts. And I mean, I can hear it from almost a half a mile away. And the whole walk up there, he just kept going back and forth between this question because he wanted them to understand that eternal life was not found in religious ritual, was not found in religious performance, was not found in moral success or, or failure, but it's found in a person who did for us something that we could not do for ourselves. And so the one that does not believe, who rejects putting their faith in the Son, they'll never see life because they've rejected the very source of life, who is Jesus Christ. The second result, the final result, the wrath of God abides on him. Very, very sad statement. One of the saddest statements, I think, in all of Scripture. Abide means to remain, to abide or dwell. It meant right now, continually, God's wrath remains on this type of person who uh, has never been persuaded to trust in Christ alone. That means whether we realize it or not, that every person that in this room or anywhere in the world that's saying today, I won't, I won't trust in Jesus Christ. I'm not convinced that there's literally a a, a guillotine of God's judgment hanging over their head. And and it doesn't have to be that way because God has provided a solution that they can avoid it. This last verse fits perfectly with John 3, 18. Let's go back there and just read that as a closing verse. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned, notice, already. Why? Because he has not believed or never believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John the Baptist's testimony is over. He, he has put forth his best explanation for why Jesus must increase and why he must decrease. And by implication, he must increase and we must decrease as well. And the, and the question for you today is, are you, are you convinced? You know, are, you, are you persuaded that that's an adequate life goal for you? And I pray that it is. And I pray that if anyone here doesn't know for sure where they're going when they die, that they will be convinced of what Jesus Christ accomplished for them this morning and put their faith in him alone. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I I just thank you for the Lord Jesus. Our prayer this morning, as always, is that he was exalted uh, in the the minds uh, of those uh, listening and that we could just not be as distracted, Lord, as we typically get in our life. And we could really begin to live, live out and grow in this, this life goal of Jesus increasing and us decreasing. And so that's our prayer this morning as we walk out of here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.